have your Bible, I'm going to ask that you would turn back to where we left off last week in chapter 7 of Revelation. This is the second part of the message that's entitled, Sealed and Secure, Sealed and Secure. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we recognize that, especially in Revelation, sometimes we, we leave there with more questions than we have answers. And yet, Lord, we know that it was given to John as a vision specifically for the first century churches that were going through such difficulty, but also for an application for us so that we could have a full understanding that the way that human history will end is with your fingerprints on it and that we belong to you and that you are in total control. And so I pray today as we begin to examine your word and, and even different possibilities of how something might look in Scripture from different ways, I pray that you would help us to, to be able to chew on the word and that the meat of the word would bring us to a place of becoming better students and that we would pursue you with all of our heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for all of you who promised me last week that you would come back and that you would at least finish up what we got started last week. And just as a quick reminder where we were last week, when we get to chapter 7, there is this pause that takes place in Scripture. Before the sixth seal is fully released upon the earth, they were talking about the four angels holding back the four winds. There are some that believe that these four angels are actually the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we had talked about earlier. That before this fully comes on, that the Lord calls a timeout. And in the middle of this timeout, he goes around and he says, here's what we're going to do. Before all of this happens, I want you as angels to go around and seal my people so that those who are mine, I will know they were mine, they will know they were mine, and we're going to seal them in the middle of all of this. And we find this in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 when it says, Then I saw an angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put the seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. We begin to look at that and we begin to recognize that God, before anything is poured out, He wants to make sure that His people are sealed. Can I just tell you I'm so glad to have a God that thinks that way, that loves us. We recognize that this is symbolic of something that we had seen in Ezekiel chapter 9, that before the outpouring of the wrath of God upon Jerusalem, he had an angel that went before him and sealed all of the people that were not to be harmed by that wrath. And so we see this pattern uh, reappearing again here in Revelation. And so before this is fully poured out, the Lord takes a moment and he seals his people. And then we get to Revelation verse 4, chapter 7, verses 4 through 14, and I read this to you last week, and let me just go through this again. Then I heard. I'd like you just to make note of the fact that John is speaking here. This is what he hears. Then I heard the number of those sealed, 144,000 from all of the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me 
was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I told you last week that at this point, we really come to a fork in the road as it relates to Revelation because on one hand, there are those that believe in the literal interpretation of Revelation 7 that this is speaking of two multitudes. There were the 144,000 Jewish uh, that were there and then the great multitude that he sees. And this is what we talked about last week. Briefly, in this viewpoint, and it's a very familiar viewpoint, it indicates to us that before the great tribulation that the church is caught up or the church is raptured. We use that term rapture even though that term is not a biblical term. In, in Greek, it means being caught up. And, and that is the way we describe it. Understanding then that the Holy Spirit who is presently in the church and currently serves as a restraining force, which we see in Second Thessalonians, is withdrawn from the church or from the earth when the church is caught up. And then immediately after the rapture of the church, 144,000 Jews will acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, according to Revelation 7, and that they will come from every tribe and will become evangelists. Their sealing, the sealing of the Spirit upon them, indicates that they are immune from all of the attacks so that their ministry will be accompanied uh, with power and signs and wonders and will not be able to be destroyed by the Antichrist. We look at that and we recognize that in the darkest hours of the world, during a time when the Antichrist is ruling, these 144,000 Jewish evangelists will have incredible success in reaching people. In fact, their success will be so great that it will be unprecedented in the history of Christendom up to that particular time. The second multitude, which is mentioned in Revelation 7, then becomes a result of their evangelistic efforts, which leads to an uncountable multitude from all of the nations and all of the tribes and the people and the languages and the earth, and all of them will be saved. And so we see in this that the tribulation would be marked by a great ingathering of souls that is essentially this scenario in brief. I personally hold that this view may be true. We discussed briefly about some of the textual issues as we looked at that and begin to look at some of those that say that there may be the possibility that there's another potential that exists. We looked at the word and recognized that from chapter four on, the word church is no longer used in Revelation, indicating to us that believe that way that the church is now in the presence of the Lord. However, there is the word elect and saints that are used throughout the rest of Revelation. And in fact, we notice that there are other places in the New Testament that talks about the church in these same terms of elect or those that are saints. And so we see that the possibility exists that other terms may be there to recognize the church. Then there were some theological questions. And by and by bringing these up, and by the way, thank you for the questions that I have received this week and the conversations I've been able to have with a number of you. By bringing these theological questions, it does not mean that I'm casting doubt on the Word of God. I'm just saying that being critical thinkers allows us to look at the Scripture in such a way that there may be things we can't answer, but it's wise of us to study it. Some of the theological questions that come up, 
for people that believe this view is the assumption that the greatest growth of the church is going to take place without the presence of the Holy Spirit as we know it today. When I say that, we recognize that there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and that the New Testament church has lived under the power and guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit to them. So we are saying that if the Spirit of the Lord is raptured and his church is taken away and he goes with them, then that presence of the Holy Spirit as we know it today would not be available to those 144,000 evangelists during that time. In essence, what we're saying is that the ministry of the Spirit would return as if it were in the Old Testament, before the outpouring of the Old Testament or outpouring of the Holy Spirit. One of the interesting things here is we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, And now you know what is holding him back, him being the Antichrist, may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. By the way, are we not seeing the power of lawlessness? at work but the one who now holds it back that one being the holy spirit will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way and so we see here in scripture that there is an understanding that when the church is caught up that the ministry of the holy spirit would be different another one of the questions that came out of this view was how will 144,000 jews and by the way If you look at Revelation chapter 14, these 144,000 Jews would be single Jewish men that have never had sex with a woman. It says that they are undefiled by having sex with women. These 144,000 Jewish men of an ethnically closed group will establish in an amazingly short period of time an international body of saints. And that the tribulation church, without the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we know it today, will have a greater success than the present church has had throughout the generations of Christendom to this point. Another theological issue that we were asking about and questioning was the fact of a second chance that the tribulation saints, those that would be missed the rapture, would have a second chance in the tribulation. And what does that look like? And so I'm not saying that this view is not true. I'm just saying that there are some things that we as biblical studiers need to wrestle with as we look at this before we say, I know for a fact what everything is going to look like. That brings us now to the second possibility that exists, that rather than being a literal interpretation, that this would be a symbolic interpretation, one multitude that is described two ways. Now, some of you are saying, the pastor... Why are you even bringing up possibilities? Because Revelation doesn't give us a lot of answers, but it gives us some possibilities, and I don't think it's wrong of us to be able to look at what the possibilities of Scripture might be for us. Remember, when we are dealing with Revelation, the writing of Revelation, the literature of it is apocalyptic, which means that symbolic things happen. And there are quick changes in moods and styles. And we've already seen this in Revelation chapter 5. In fact, when we were in Revelation chapter 5, you will notice, as you think back to this, John is standing there, and the elder says to him when he begins to weep because they couldn't find anybody who could go to the Father and take the will, the last will and testament of the Father from his hand. And the elder says to him these words, Do not weep. 
For the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Do you remember that when we were there? He says, don't weep because that's who has the ability. And there's a Jewish reference here, and notice the figure of the speech. The elder says, the lion has conquered. He heard this. John heard this, that the lion has conquered. So it's interesting that when he opens his eyes to see what has just been described to him, what he sees is not the lion of the tribe of Judah. He sees a lamb that appears to have been slaughtered. He was described as the lion. He sees the lamb. The lion, the Messiah of Jewish history, became the lamb of Christian suffering. And they are the same thing. But John hears one form, and he sees another form. He hears, and then he sees. So if you take that symbolic application that we've already seen in chapter 5, and you apply that now in chapter 7, here's what's going on. It tells us that John never sees the 144,000. Scripture says he heard. I heard the number, and then he hears the tribal divisions. But when he turns to look at what had just been described to him, he sees a multitude with so great a number that nobody can describe it and nobody can number it. That's a way of saying that John hears a scriptural image of Israel But when he looks, he sees an innumerable host, a multitude of God's redeemed people from all times and all generations, all of us together at the same time in its totality. And we look at this and say, well, then why then? Why then did it describe as the number sealed as 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe? I think you need to go to the symbolism of what the number 12 means in the Bible. The number 12 is completeness, totality. So when he's talking about the 12,000 from each tribe, 12,000 times 12,000 times 1,000, that number comes to 144,000, indicating to us symbolically that there's the completeness. Everybody that is sealed is counted for and is present at this particular time. It expresses to us, and this should comfort us, that God completely knows who his people are. And through the figure of 144,000, he's saying, I don't lose track of one of you. I know all of you completely. I have every one of you in my heart, my mind, and in my hand, and I will not lose anyone that belongs to me. There are those that would say, okay, okay. But I need to raise the objection that the 144,000 that are spoken of here is talking about Israel. How how do we navigate that? Because it's not talking about the church, not talking about a New Testament church. And so there needs to be a distinguishing between the two. Again, for the purpose of being good biblical scholars, let me point this out. I do believe that that point of view is missing the symbolism of Revelation. For example... It's missing the symbolism of what went on in chapter 5 that we see again repeated in 7 of hearing one thing, seeing another. 
It's missing the symbolism of Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 and 3, 9, when God was speaking about his people, Jewish people, as saying this, that non-believing Jews were of a synagogue of Satan. Do you remember that from the churches? In Galatians chapter 6, a New Testament church, the body of Christ in Galatians is called the Israel of God. In other words, we who are a part of the New Testament church, though we may not be Jewish, are included in the totality of the Israel of God, according to Scripture. In Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says this about the difference in the Jews and the Gentiles. He said, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. In other words, Paul is saying there is a spiritual Israel that goes beyond just the literal Israel. He says it again in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, when he says, we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit and in glory in Christ Jesus. We can go beyond that, and we also find a terminology that's used in the first verse of James. James writes this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, is he talking to the 12 tribes of Israel? No. He is talking to the entire church, and we are likened them as the 12 tribes were scattered, so the church then was being scattered under persecution. So calling upon those precedents that we find in Scripture, it is possible that Revelation 7 Israel can be described as not just the literal Israel, but be referred to here as a spiritual Israel of which we who are New Testament believers are a part of. Does that make sense? I have struggled this week trying to bring that to a place where we can begin to see and understand that. And then there are those that say, but just a second, before we get too far down that path, let me just ask this question. If that's the case, why then do they go into such detail describing the 12,000 people from each tribe? I did an interesting study this week on the 12 tribes. I had a nice chance to talk with Pastor Wynn about this, and he was nodding his head in agreement because he's done this study as well in the past. And here's what I found out. The original 12 tribes that were divided up because they were about to be given land that was apportioned to them in Genesis 49, and you look at that list of the original 12 tribes and you compare it to the list of 12 tribes that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 7, you're going to find at least a couple of interesting discoveries, which I believe contribute to the symbolism John is trying to derive here as this vision comes to us. The first interesting thing is this. Of the 12 tribes that are listed in Genesis, one tribe is completely missing from Revelation altogether, and that is the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan, as you look at it historically, was the first tribe to embrace Baal worship and had a long-standing history of idolatry. Now, for all of those of you who are named Dan in the church today, do not take this personal because it is not meant to be. But the early church from the second century on believed that Christ had been born from the tribe of Judah, and so it must be that the Antichrist would come from the tribe of Dan. 
And so the, revelation of, uh, the, the writer of Revelation is saying to us, you will not find Dan's tribe in the Israel of God because you will not find apostasy in heaven. You will not find disbelief in heaven. You will not find those who have served idols and other gods in heaven. The Lord knows who are His, and He seals them, and the pure in heart will be found in heaven. The second thing that I found interesting out of this is that in Revelation, Judah, the tribe of Judah, is at the front of the list. Now, if you know anything about Jewish history, you would understand that that shouldn't happen or it shouldn't make sense because Judah, by logic, should not be at the front because Judah was the fourthborn, not the firstborn. He's not the oldest son. He's the fourthborn. And in all of the Old Testament, the only other time besides Revelation chapter 7 where Judah is ever listed at the front of the tribal lists is in the book of Numbers. And the book of Numbers is always about the children of Israel being in the wilderness. So whenever Judah comes first in the tribal list, it's because the children of Israel were between being delivered from Egypt and had not yet entered into the promised land, but were in their wilderness wanderings. If you look at that symbolically, is that not precisely where we as a church are living today? We are living between the cross of Jesus Christ, which has delivered us from our sins, and we are not yet a raptured church. We are not yet in heaven. We are living in the wilderness of this period of time where it's the lion of the tribe of Judah that is our Savior, our keeper, and our leader. It's Jesus who leads his people through the wilderness and I believe it's an apt description for where we are between salvation and the Lord's return. And so we can look at this particular chapter and we can see that there is reasonable understanding that it could either be literal or it can be symbolic. But here are the facts. Regardless of which way you may lean, the fact of the matter is, is that we are a part of the sealed. We are a part of the family of God. We are a part of those who the Lord says, I have stamped you because of your confession of faith in me and the way that you live your life. I have stamped you. I have sealed you. I own you. I will be with you. I will strengthen you. And I will bring you home. And I will not lose one of you in all of this. Which then leads us into what is the destiny of the sealed? In verse 9, it says this, And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they crowd with a cried with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Do you know how much fun it's going to be to be a part of that group? It is going to be beyond description. So we see in verses 1 through 3 the protection that was given to God's people before His wrath is poured out. And let me just say this. This is an important designation. 
God seals his people from his wrath, not from the wrath of the world. That's an important distinction. He seals his people from his wrath, but not from Pharaoh's wrath, not from government's wrath, not from those that would persecute the church, their wrath. And so if your understanding is that by being sealed, I'm going to breeze through this and nothing may happen to me, then you have a misunderstanding of what Scripture is saying here. And there is precedent of that found in Scripture. In verses 4 through 8, we see that God has redeemed His people and that none are missing. And here's an important thing to notice. As we're going to see later on in Revelation, there will be another seal, and it will be the seal of the Antichrist as those that will take on the mark of the beast. But before any sealing of the Antichrist, God's seal comes first. Hallelujah! God's seal comes first. So while he might not necessarily protect us from adversity and persecution, he does protect us from his wrath. And so here's an image of God's people. Such a large multitude that they are not able to be counted. They're from everywhere in every nation and every tribe and every tongue standing there. And this is fascinating about this because thus far in Revelation, the weeks that we've spent in it, everything around the throne has been countable up to this time. You look at it and you're going, there was one God, one lamb, 24 elders, four living ones, 10,000 times 10,000 times thousands and thousands of angels. Everything else around the throne has been specifically counted or has been estimated. But for the first time in this book, there is a crowd that is so big that John can't even number it. He doesn't even attempt. He doesn't even give an estimate of it. He doesn't even give us a ballpark figure. He just simply says that the sight of all of the God's people from all of the generations, from all of the history, is so great that it will be unable to be counted. Now that's going to be quite a church service to be a part of. Somehow we, we sometimes get a little provincial in the way that we do church, and we begin to think of God's kingdom as limited to maybe just where we are or just what we're going through. And I remember as a kid growing up, my father pastored a church in central Nebraska that when everybody was there, we might have, you know, 60 people. And so the number of kids or the youth that were a part of that church were not very many. I remember leaving there and moving to Springfield, Missouri, where the youth group that I attended had way more than 100 kids in it. And, and suddenly the whole kingdom of God began to look way larger than what I had experienced up to that time. And I remember thinking, how great is this that I can be a part like this? It just seemed to make living for God so much easier to have so many people walking it with you. And yet that couldn't even be a drop in the bucket to what will worship around the throne of God when we get there. Because all of the scattered people of God are being reminded at that moment that we will be united with all of the believers through the centuries and all of the tribes and nations will gather around the throne and there will be no way anybody can count us. And it says we'll be in front of the throne in white robes. It's a purity that you could not give yourself. It was the blood of the lamb, the red blood that made you white, that gives you a robe of righteousness, which stands for festive joy and for victory and for purity. And it says that they were waving palm branches. Where have we seen that before? When Jesus was entering into Jerusalem and they were waving branches because they wanted him to be king. They wanted him to overthrow the government. He's going, you don't understand. My government is so much bigger than this little city. 
what I've got in store for you is going to make this look small in comparison. And, and they were so disappointed that he wouldn't do on earth what he finally lets them wave their palms in heaven and he says, now you can wave them. Here is my kingdom. I'm the king of all of the universe, not just the city of Jerusalem. I have set up my throne and I'm the king of kings and lord of lords of everything. And we will be waving those branches before the Lord at the throne of God. And it's all because it's a gift. It's a gift to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that anybody could boast. I am so grateful today to be able to stand before you and introduce you to the one that can give you the gift of eternal life with his son, Jesus Christ. Every one of us, none of us here can say that we have earned salvation on our own works or done it by ourselves because we recognize it is a gift that has been given to us and we will be able to participate in the joy of heaven, that sight and that sound and that scene which John is overwhelmed with at what he sees and what he hears. And one of the elders asked him in verse 13, these in white robes, who are they? Where'd they come from? John answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are those that have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now I want you to remember for a minute who John's audience was. It was to first century churches that were living in a time of tribulation. Tremendously persecuted people. And they are hearing what he has to say. And what he is telling them is, I need you to know to hang on. It may seem difficult right now. You may not understand everything, but hang on because these things are soon going to take place. You will have victory. You will overcome. You will have a strength. And those that are, are pushing you down now will one day kneel before your God as you are celebrating with him. So hang on tight because our God is going to be victorious. Cindy and I this week, each of us, different occasions have had people that have been Christians for a long time that asked us a question that ended it with the same words. They were explaining the difficulties they were going through and they said one to her and one to me, can you tell me where God is in all of this? Tell me where God is in all of this. Can I just tell you this? The God that we serve is a God that strengthens us in the middle of the battle, prepares us for it, upholds us in it. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when you're asking, where is God in, this, in, in all of this? I need you to know that he is as close as the mention of his name. You may feel isolated. You may be afraid. You may feel as if I, I have done all these things. And when I prayed, I expected God to answer in this way because that's what I think blessing looks like. And I think what he's trying to tell his church is you need to hang on and get ready. You need to be a people that is full of the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be able to be a, a people that will stand up and be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you need to also be prepared that it's going to get rough. But when you hang on and you make it through, let me show you what's on the other side. You will stand at the presence of the throne of God. And he wraps it up with these words. Therefore, verses 15 through 17, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and 
He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb is at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Isn't it interesting that the lamb becomes the shepherd? The lamb becomes the shepherd. And he will lead them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Worship team, would you please come? I think, it was, I think it was last Sunday. If it wasn't, it was the Sunday before. I was standing out here in the foyer. It was before church had started, and, and one of our deacons, Chris Salvage, was, was holding his daughter, and her eyes were all puffy and red. She had stains down the side of her cheek where she had been crying, and I saw her there hanging on to her dad, and I walked up, and I said, what happened? Is everything okay? And he goes, oh... She just missed me. She just missed me. And then she smiled with these tear stains down her cheek, smiled and grabbed a hold of his neck. And, and this passage of Scripture just struck me. Why is it that God will wipe away the tears? It's because for some of us, we are going to be taken right out of a scene that we will have been crying from. We will be taken out of a scene where it will have been so difficult we will have wondered from time to time, how are you going to do this, God? We will be taken from places of hardship. Now, I'm not saying it may happen to all of us, but I'm, I'm saying that the church is not going to have it easy in the last days and that suddenly we are instantly transported from that place of tears and, and puffy eyes wondering when everything's going to happen and instantly we're in the presence of the Lord and we're hanging on to His neck and everything is okay now even though we still have the scenes of the puffy eyes and the tears streaming down our face and the Lamb of God will wipe those out of our eyes. This gentle view of a shepherd who takes us and he says, everything's going to be okay because you're home. When are we going to get there and how's that all going to look? I wish I could tell you. I wish I had all the answers. I just know that the scripture tells us that when you make a decision for Christ, you become sealed. And he doesn't lose any of his own. That should encourage your heart. Would you stand with me as we prepare to sing a song here in conclusion?
Hallelujah. Let's sing that chorus again, shall we? In this moment, I would like to make an invitation to you. I don't know what your background is or what you come into the house of the Lord with today, but here's what I do know, that I serve a Savior that will forgive you, that will save you, that will deliver you, that will change you, make you a brand new creature, and He will seal you with His Holy Spirit, signifying His ownership of you and that you become a co-heir with Jesus to the blessings of heaven. And with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I'm gonna do it this way this morning. If you're here today and you would like to make that decision, as I look through the room, I'm simply gonna ask that you would just lift your head and that you would look at me. And I'm going to agree with you when I see your eyes. And then I'm gonna pray a prayer over all of us that have done that this morning. And I'm gonna be starting on your left and my right as I'm looking around. If you're here today and say, yes, yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Moving now into the center sections here. Is the Lord speaking to your heart? Yes, sir, I agree with you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Moving now over the way into the far, your far right, my far left. Into the overflow. Heavenly Father, as we gather together today to examine your word and to learn from your word. I pray that you would take it. And this, this has been a meaty message. And yet in this, Lord God, what we come to understand is that you are a God that seals and protects and that you are leading us on a journey that ultimately when we stand before you, we will be shouting and singing and praising Hosanna to the King because of what you did for us right now. And for those that have responded to you this morning, I pray that they would have this sensation flowing through their spirit of newness of life that comes when they receive you as their Savior. And they ask that you would cleanse them of their sin. And they invite you to be a part of their life, Lord. Sealing them, I pray. And Father, we recognize that it tells us that all of the heavens rejoice when one sinner comes home. I can't imagine the sound when all of us who are redeemed sinners stand before you, but it is going to be magnificent. May we hold that in our heart. Because, Lord, we know the signs of the times are ominous. But we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will stand firm, holding on to you, knowing that you hold history in your hand and you hold our eternities in your hand. And we trust you with it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.